You're listening to the Harris Beach Podcast, a show that explores evolving issues in the law and how they shape organizations, the way business is conducted, and how we live and work. The information provided in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Thanks for listening. Here's today's host. Welcome to the Harris Beach Podcast. I'm today's host, Brian Carnavali. As we know, on March 31st, Governor Andrew Cuomo signed into law the New York State Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act, which legalized recreational use of marijuana for adults over the age of 21. Although retail sales of marijuana are not expected to begin until 2022, the legalized use of marijuana became effective immediately. Our cannabis industry team of attorneys is working with a number of organizations looking to tap into the burgeoning market in New York State. From large-scale growers to retail dispensaries to beverage producers and delivery operators of all sizes. And today we're joined by two attorneys from the team, Carl Slate and Megan Feenan, and we're rejoined by Morgan Hopkins, a CPA at DeJoy, Knopf and Blood, and the director of its hemp and cannabis services. Together, they're going to address some of the frequently asked questions that come up during their conversations with organizations throughout the state and beyond. Megan, Morgan, Carl, thanks so much for joining us again. Have you been getting many calls from organizations looking to enter this market? Can you give us a sense of the general issues that you're fielding? Morgan, maybe you can take that one to start. Yeah, I've been getting a ton of calls, um, especially from, you know, I, I hail out of the greater Rochester area and I've been speaking to a lot of entrepreneurs in our, our area here that are, are looking to get into the business. I think the the major issues that I'm hearing, at least from those who are looking to start something new, is when's the license coming? When can I apply? When am I going to see an application? What's going to be on the application? Um, what are the requirements going to be? What, what are we hearing about regulations? People just want more information right now. And I think that's a natural part of the process when there's an industry that basically springs up from nowhere, you know, how do you do it? When can you do it? Those are the big questions I'm hearing. That all makes sense. Carl, what about uh, from the Harris Beach side? What, what are you hearing? We're getting a lot of the same questions. And what we're trying to do is prepare our clients as early as possible for uh, the publication of the regulations and the applications themselves. It's our view, uh, based upon a lot of other work we've done in highly regulated spaces in New York, that there's things that we can do now for our clients to help help them be ready. Uh, a lot of that includes internal due diligence, integrity issues, gathering information and documents, uh, helping with corporate structures so that when the applications do drop, you know, our clients won't be scrambling uh, to try to get them in on time. That all makes sense. Thank you. And Megan, probably helpful for you to level set us here. So, so the law passed a couple months ago now. Now that that's happened, what, what comes next? You know, what, what happens between now and licenses and cannabis control board and everything else that goes with it? What, 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 are, the, what are the stages here? So there's quite a few uh, action items that have to take place before adult use will, will really be up and running in New York. And the first order of business is appointment of the Cannabis Control Board. We expect that to occur by the end of New York legislative session, which generally concludes uh, 
at the end of June or so. And once that board is appointed, then we expect to see regulations issued that will add some more meat to the bones of this legislation and hopefully set up the application process as well. Carl, back to you for a second. Morgan touched on this in, in her earlier answer, um, but, but simply put, can, can businesses and individuals apply for a license right now? There is no license to apply for at the moment for adult use recreational marijuana. There certainly are licenses on the hemp side of the equation. They've been out for some, some period of time. So they will likely be dropped or published uh, shortly after the regulations are. And do we have any sense of how much a license costs? Uh, and I guess secondary question there would be, will there be different costs for the different types of licenses? We borrow on our uh, work that we've done in the hemp space as well as the registered organizations on the medical marijuana side. So in the hemp space, licenses can run for as little as a thousand to four thousand uh, dollars. In the medical marijuana space, you know they were tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, because of the infusion in the statute to help groups that were historically disadvantaged uh, by um, harsh narcotics and marijuana laws on, on the penal system, uh, we expect those licenses to be reasonable. Otherwise, they're going to price the folks out that they are uh, most interested in, in helping. Got it. So now that we've established that you can't apply yet, what should organizations or an individual, what should they be doing to get ready for when license applications are available to them? And, and I guess, you know, as part of that answer, are there drawbacks to just waiting until applications are available? Well, certainly there's a lot of things that uh, companies can be doing now to get ready. You know, one of the lessons we learned in the uh, license process for medical marijuana licenses, there was only 30 days to submit your license uh, until that time frame closed. So if you weren't ready and had your ducks in a row, many people were left on the sidelines. I don't know that that will happen here, but there could be similar instances that, you know, could affect timing. So if you have as much done as you possibly can on the front side, uh, and we're carrying checklists for all of our clients, things that they can do to be ready, um, they'll be in a much better position and hopefully they'll be just fine tuning when the application comes out rather than scrambling for um, elements that they'll need in their application. I would just add that without being able to see the regulations, it's not clear right now whether there'll be a quota on the number of licenses that are available, but we do think there'll be some sort of regional system, aka, you know, this number will be allocated to Western New York and this number will be available downstate. So applicants can can start looking and, and trying to figure out how to best position themselves to be able to secure a license if the case. Morgan, back to you for a couple of questions. You know, as an organization works through a business plan in a highly regulated industry like this, what, what kinds of items should they include in a business plan that, that maybe wouldn't be normally? Well, I think one of the, the areas that I've seen um, uh, some cannabis entrepreneurs stumble is um, a focus too heavily on EBITDA. So that's um, earnings before income tax appreciation and amortization. Um, 
The, the income taxes for a federally illegal business are quite onerous, and I won't um, bore anybody um, with the, the legislation the underlying um, what 280E is in the Internal Revenue Code, but essentially um, it creates a an, an very substantial tax burden on businesses like these. So ignoring that in your business plan would be a huge mistake. Some other things as well is uh, capital raise levels. You know, oftentimes when an entrepreneur is getting ready to go, they may build out their funding for their um, endeavor to be made up of a couple different capital stacks, both um, investment from actual people or other entities, and maybe a component that is more, uh, you know, traditional bank financing. In the cannabis area, it's quite unlikely that you'll be able to get financing, or if you do, that um, it would be affordable financing. And it's possible that the internal rate of return that investors will demand will be quite higher in a cannabis-related business than it would be in another due to the, the heightened level of risk in such an investment. Some other things would be uh, risk disclosures and mitigation of those risks. For example, there's risk that you just don't get a license. There's risk that um, the regulations change and suddenly the product that you developed is out of compliance. Um, there's risk of federal interference. All of those risks are not risks that are completely able to be eliminated, but there are, there are ways that you can mitigate some of that risk, and that should be addressed as part of your business plan. There's a number of other things as well, but I think that those are three of the, the top ones um, on my mind. And I guess when you think about costs that someone may not be anticipating you know, in an, in an industry like this, what are some of those? I mean, I imagine that it's tied to a lot of what you just covered, but you know, are there are there costs right the, right off the bat that an entrepreneur needs to be thinking about if they're going to get involved in, in a cannabis related business? Yeah, without repeating some of the things I talked about, there are a couple others as well. Um, something that I like to call um, a hidden risk premium um, would be similar to the the type of premiums that you pay if you're having a wedding. So if you hire a DJ for an hour, uh, you know, a six hour period of time um, and you say it's for a wedding and you hire the same DJ for six hours of time and it's a work event, which one's going to cost more? Well, it's going to be the wedding. Why? Because the word wedding is included. In this industry, people uh, tend to find that um, the fees associated with the services that get provided or with products that they may purchase. The pricing may be higher if the, the vendor or the, the service provider is, understands that it's a cannabis-related business. So I call that a, a hidden risk premium. So because they're taking on a customer that is of higher risk, that they inherently want to justify uh, charging more for that service. Also, some of the hidden costs um, would be things like community involvement that's going to not necessarily be compulsory like it is in a place like Massachusetts that has host community agreements, but it could be something that is more or less a, a requirement to have a friendly um, environment in, a, in an area where you operate. Things like, um, you know, contributing to um, social equity programs within your area, as well as having hiring policies that would um, support um, the social equity um, within the area. Also, something that I really anticipate is going to happen is um, 
I could see the security itself as a design element of a space, maybe even being a requirement where not only do you have to have a security guard or a camera, but there's possibility that the design of your space itself has to be responsive to the security needs. Um, and those may be things that you never really thought were going to be necessary um, if you were creating a business that is similar, but not necessarily a, a cannabis-related business itself. That's really interesting stuff. Thanks so much, Morgan, for that. I'm going to shift gears just slightly here. For Carl and Megan, what does the MRTA say about towns, villages, and cities and, and their, um, whether or not they can opt out of cannabis sales? What are you hearing about the thought process and next steps for municipalities? What, what's, what's the scuttlebutt there as, as, as municipalities start to make those decisions? First, Brian, most interestingly, um, the state did not give that opt-in or opt-out opportunity at a county level. So, you know, we look at other regulated areas, for example, um, what in the law is those sparkling devices, but what we typically call fireworks. Counties have the ability to opt in or opt out whether or not they're going to be selling those in the county. This opt in or opt out is at the town, village, and city level. And that has to do with whether or not those municipalities will or will not allow retail. What we're generally seeing is those trend along political lines. And that, that is just starting to develop in some places. Uh, more urban areas seem to be more inclined to allow it. There are other places that are suburban or else, uh, elsewhere that, you know, seem to be trending against. But at this point in time, we see those municipalities gathering a lot of uh, information and looking for uh, community input. You know, and there's some timing issues here, too, and I'll, I'll toss it over to Megan for, for that piece of it. Sure. So each each municipality, if they are going to opt out of either retail dispensary sales or on-site consumption sales, they must pass a permissive referendum to do so by December 31st, 2021. So they're, they're under the clock at this point. Uh, after that date, it's unlikely that they would be able to pass that referendum to opt out. Uh, at this point, we, we've already seen, as Carl mentioned, some municipalities indicate and publicly comment on what how they're going to handle this. Uh, for instance, the village of Union Springs, East Rockaway Village, Lynbrook Village, and the town of Shelter Island have all indicated that they will likely opt out of both retail dispensary and on-site consumption sales. Whereas the town of Rondequoit in Western New York has already commented that it will likely opt in and sees this as an area of growth for the town. So there are, there's many municipalities that haven't publicly commented yet, and they have some time to do so. But if they do want to opt out, they must do so by December 31st, 2021. Thanks, Megan and Carl. Last question for the group. So Morgan and Megan are planning a, a second happy hour Q&A this summer. Hopefully you had a chance to sit on the first one a few weeks back, but they're planning a second where we'll be able to hit on some of the developments um, in the coming weeks. But before we get there, anything that we missed on this episode that we should have touched on? Any Anything else that anyone wants to cover? And, and if not, that's okay too. We'll wait for that next uh, Q&A that, that we'll host. But anything that anyone wants to touch on right now? 
Just following up on something Morgan said, which, which I think is true, when you're planning your space, you know, there's a enhanced security element to this. As I think most people know who follow this particular area, uh, it's very difficult to establish traditional banking um, relationships, and that can result in, you know, significant amounts of cash on hand. And uh, with that, uh, unless something breaks in Washington on the Safe Bank Act or at the state level, um, that's that's something that folks should keep in mind. Okay. Well, we really thank Megan, Morgan, Carl for joining us today. Really fascinating stuff. This industry is moving quickly. There's a ton to cover. Um, having everyone hop on is a great way to keep everyone informed. So thanks so much. For more information uh, about how Harris Beach and the Joy Knopf and Blood can help you navigate this changing cannabis landscape, visit www.harrisbeach.com slash cannabis and www.teamdkb.com slash cannabis. While you're there, you can contact Megan, Morgan, Carl. You can subscribe to cannabis-related content, and you can sign up for that happy hour webinar that I mentioned earlier in the episode. Thanks so much for joining us. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Harris Beach Podcast. Be sure to visit harrisbeach.com to join the conversation and access show notes. Please rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast.